We're doing a series on Elijah, and I think God worked it out where one of the most important topics is going to fall on this morning, dealing with the subject of the rain. We talked last night about Elijah praying and fire came down, and it still is mind-boggling to me that after the prophets of Baal ranted and raved and jumped and leapt and called and chanted, cut themselves all day long, hour after hour. Nothing happened. Elijah prays, and we timed it, remember? 20 seconds and a half, and the fire of God comes down. Well, that 20-second prayer was the culmination of years of praying. We're going to talk a little bit today about prayer. We're going to be talking about the purpose of prayer, the power of prayer, the posture of prayer, the persistence of prayer. All of that with the objective of praying that we might be a spirit-filled people. So return, please, with me to 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings 18, and we're going to pick up where we left off. And uh, tonight, God willing, we'll get Elijah to heaven, which is where we want to go. So we're following Elijah in his journey. How many of you would like to be translated as opposed to dying? It's not that I'm particularly afraid of dying, but if you give me my choice, I'd rather be translated. Someone asked Woody Allen if he was afraid of dying. He says, no, I just don't want to be there when it happens. So after he prayed and the fire came down and they purged the evil, idolatrous prophets from the land. Then Elijah says to Ahab, he's respecting the office of the king, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of an abundance of rain. Now Elijah makes this statement. Uh, he's telling the king to eat and drink. There's been a famine. A lot of people have been really rationing everything, but Elijah's saying you don't need to ration anymore because God is going to stop the famine today. Because the people have repented. They've humbled themselves. They said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They're no longer halting between two opinions. What happened before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the apostles? They knelt together. They put aside their differences. They made room for the working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. If you'd like to experience the fullness of the Spirit, it's not that complicated. Be emptied of everything else and make room for God to fill you. When they humbled themselves before the Lord, he was then able to act. And even though Elijah looked up, and it's now late afternoon, the sky is still brazen as it had been for three and a half years. There's not the slightest hint of rain. He says, there is the sound of an abundance of rain. Well, he didn't hear it except by faith. Because the Bible says God calls things that are not as though they are. God called Abraham father of a multitude. And I don't know if you realize that Abraham went around the promised land for several years bearing the name father of a multitude. And people would say, what's your name? Father of a multitude. Well, how many kids do you have? None yet, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> how old is your wife? Well, she's about 85. God calls those things that are not as though they are. You know, God calls his church saints. Isn't that something? 
because Jesus said, be it unto you according to your faith. All things are possible to him that believes. If you believe that you can be like Jesus, you can. If you believed you can be saved from your sins, you can. Those spies that went and searched the promised land that believed, now here, Mrs. Bachelor's here. We'd like to introduce her. <laughs> she was very nice. You can probably hear from the sound of it. She's so bashful, I can't ever get her to, you know. Yeah, it's my fault she wasn't there. I texted her before I came up. I said, you got a cough drop. And I never did connect with her. Finally, by the time he introduced her, she was looking for me in the back with the cough drops. And anyway. But um, now what was I saying? <laughs> oh, the two spies that went over. Well, there are 12 spies. Two of them believed. Joshua and Caleb. And uh, those that did not believe, they didn't make it. You realize there was two different reports from those spies. Caleb said, let us go at, up at once, for we are well able. And the others said, we are not able. And the ones who did not believe they were able were not able. They died in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua believed they were able. They made it to the promised land. That's not complicated, friends. If you believe the Lord can save you and help you overcome the giants in the land, he can. I have a hard time with people that make excuses for sin, say, oh, we can't, we're all weak, we're human, and we're going to just keep on sinning until Jesus comes. And I go, wow, what good is the gospel? You know, when the Lord found me, I was drinking and smoking and cursing and stealing and lying and living immorally, and the Lord came into my heart, and he changed me. And so I don't need excuses for sin. We all do that pretty naturally. I need encouragement to overcome. You are a new creature. All things are made new. Old things are passed away. You are born again. God has called us to holiness, without which no one will see God. Is that clear? Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. So if you believe, Abraham says the rain is coming. Do you believe God is going to send the latter rain? It's interesting, though, you know. Ahab says, all right, I'm happy to go eat. Elijah says, I'll go pray. Earlier, Elijah's worried about feeding the people. Ahab's worried about feeding his horses. Now Elijah's on his knees and the king is at his table. Some are spiritually minded and some are carnally minded. Ahab goes to the valley to eat. Elijah goes to the mountain to pray. And it says he goes up on top of Mount Carmel, a place that isn't far from where you have a vantage of the Mediterranean. And he bowed down on the ground and he put his face between his knees. He bowed as far as he could bow. I have uh, one of the elders in our church. I hope he doesn't hear this tape. Uh, whenever we have our public prayer, we kneel for prayer. And he says, shall we all kneel as far as possible? And I try not to chuckle, because in my mind, I try to picture a person kneeling as far as possible. Now, how far can you get down? You know? <laughs> I know what he means. He means for those who are able, as far as it is possible, let us kneel. But I always picture a person trying to scrunch down as low as they can. Well, this is kind of what Elijah did. He knelt down, he put his head between his knees, and he humbled himself, and he is now praying a prayer, because he's promised the king. He's promised the people. We've seen the fire. But now the famine's over because we need rain. 
One of the criteria to receiving the rain is that we humble ourselves. I want to direct you to a verse I think we all know that you find in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's the Reformation we talked about last night. Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So he gets down and he humbles himself through his posture. Now, I don't want to take this too far, but I do want to take a minute to just talk about this. I'm going to hit it, I'm going to hit it hard, and then I'll just move on. I want to talk about posture in prayer. I've noticed that there's a trend in the culture to be too casual with God. Now, it is true, God is our friend. Jesus is our brother. We ought to be able to talk to him freely, but don't ever forget that he is the king of the cosmos, that everything is subject to him. And we ought to conduct ourselves in a way where we express reverence for God. And it's appropriate, especially when we come together in a public worship to kneel and to pray. Now, I realize that sometimes where there's a hard floor and chairs are close together and we have the same issue in our church, sometimes it's not practical and God understands that. But as far as possible, we need to kneel and pray. Every morning, I get on my knees before God. The Bible tells us in Luke 22, verse 41, he, Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down to pray. If Jesus, God the Son, knelt before the Father, then should we kneel? And Daniel, when he knew the writing was signed, he went to his upper room, his windows towards Jerusalem, and he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and he prayed. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down, and he prayed. And Paul, when he said these things, he knelt down, and he prayed. And Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, he knelt on his knees before all the assembly, and he's the king. But he realized, I'm in the presence of a greater king. And it says a lot when the king gets on his knees about who the real king of Israel is. But don't forget it's not wrong to pray other ways. When he was done with his prayer, he did a benediction and he stood. You can pray at your desk. You can pray when you're driving. And if you saw how I drove, you'd pray. <laughs> and you already know how some of you drive. You can pray when you're swimming. Peter prayed when he was drowning. Lord, save me. Shortest prayer in the Bible. Actually, I think there's another prayer where Jehoshaphat says, Lord, help. So, uh, and, and you know, he was riding in a chariot. So you can pray all different kinds of ways. The Bible tells us that, you know, don't hesitate to every pray, to pray all the time. You're to pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean you go through the day on your knees. But we lift our hearts to God constantly. But there are times where we are very deliberately praying. We have a specific petition. And as often as possible, we should get on our knees before God. Elijah bowed down before the Lord. And like I said, this posture represents humility. Do you know, even in the animal kingdom, 
You ever see, you know, you got the, the, the alpha dog, and when he gets around the other dogs, you ever see what the other dogs do? They get down. They lower their heads. They show by their posture. They say, if you don't want a silverback gorilla to attack you, don't look him in the face, but bow your head. Now, that's handy if you're ever out in the jungle with a gorilla, right? But it's just saying that even in the animal kingdom, they understand their posture represents something about humility. So, you're never more like the devil than when you're proud, and you're never more like Jesus than when you're humble. He who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself in the sight of God, James says, and he will lift you up. Elijah bowed down in his prayers. And um, Ahab went up to eat and drink. Elijah prays, and now I want to talk about the persistence of his prayers. He prays and he prays for rain. And then he says to his servant, I should probably say a word about this. You say, where'd the servant come from? It was common for some of the lead prophets to have an attendant, a servant. Uh, on a couple of occasions, he left him. And probably when he fled into the wilderness to hide by the brook or when he went to the, the widow's home, he didn't want to jeopardize him. There was a price on Elijah's head. He said, you better go back home. Now, during the great gathering of Mount Carmel, he was reunited. Suddenly, it's okay to come out of the closet and say, I'm a follower of Jehovah, and his servant has come back to help him again. And he tells the servant, go up and look towards the sea. So he goes, because all the storms always came from the west, where the ocean was. If you went the other direction, there's nothing but desert. You never had water coming there. He looked, and he came back. He said, there is nothing. And Elijah shrugged and said, well, I tried. He went down to Ahab and said, I was just kidding. doesn't look like it's going to rain. Is that what he did? How important is it to pray for the rain after a famine or in the midst of a famine? It's urgent. What's more important, water after a famine or the Holy Spirit after a famine for the Word of God? And he prayed more. And he said, there's nothing. He said, go again. Seven times, he says, go again. Keeps coming back. Five times, nothing. Six, six times, nothing. It's like Naaman when he keeps washing in the Jordan. Leprosy, 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 leprosy. But Elisha said, seven times. Does God mean what he says with numbers? When God says that he blesses the seventh day, does that mean we get to pick another day? And he goes back the seventh time. And it came to, came to pass the seventh time, he said, there is a cloud as small as a man's hand. Look at the persistence of his prayer. And you say, well, that means I should just pray seven times. No, Elijah prayed seven times because the answer came after seven times. If it had not come after seven times, he would have prayed 40 times. He would have continued to pray. When he prayed for the boy to be resurrected, he prayed three times. When Elisha prayed for the resurrection, he prayed and he walked around the house and he prayed again. And when something's important, we ought to pray earnestly. We ought to pray persistently. Can you say amen? You look in the Gospel of Luke and it talks about, Jesus said, do not faint when you pray. There was a certain widow, she went to the local judge and said, avenge me of my adversary. And 
And he didn't fear God or man. He said, look, you can't bribe me. And I don't really care about you and your cause, so just get out of here. But she kept coming back. And he said, look, leave me alone. I'm busy today. And she kept coming back. And every time he walked out of his office, there she was in the waiting room. And she'd jump up. And day after day, this widow was there. And every time he looked at his pager, she had a message. And every time he answered the phone, she was calling and tried to block her number. But he'd walk out of the office. She was stalking him. And finally, he says to himself, you know, even though I don't fear God or man, and she can't bribe me, she has nothing to offer me, I'm going to give her justice because she's wearing me out. And Jesus then says, even you understand the principle of a squeaky wheel gets the grease. How much more will your righteous Father in heaven answer those who plead unto him day and night, though he bear long with them? You may have to pray persistently. You know what's happening when we pray? It's not like God is deaf and you're trying to get his attention. You are being transformed by your persistent prayers. Jesus shares a parable of someone who comes and he's got a, a neighbor that's in need. And he says, can you help me? He says, look, we're asleep. Family's in bed. Just can't, But go, come back another time. But he keeps knocking. And because he's his friend, he finally says, all right, all right. Well, is God your friend? Does he love you? Did he give his son to save you? Does he want to answer your prayers? We think sometimes because God answers slowly, he is reluctant. God is more anxious and eager to answer your prayers than you are to pray your prayers. But you are being transformed as you pray. Persistence does something to you. Keep praying. Romans 12, 12. <clears throat> Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Perseverance in prayer. Colossians 4, 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant with thanksgiving. Psalm 88, verse 1, O Lord God, my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before your ears, day and night. James 5, 16, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And then he goes on to talk about Elijah. Pray persistently. Pray in a posture of humility. And it says, the prayer of a righteous man. Now, who here feels qualified to say, I can offer the prayer of a righteous man or woman? Through Christ, I can. I've seen the Lord answer so many prayers that I prayed, and I know it's not because of my righteousness in myself, but I believe in his righteousness. And if he does that for me, he'll do it for you. Sometimes people come to me and they say, it happened a few minutes ago, and they say, Pastor Doug, we've got this special need and we hope that you'd pray for us or our family or whatever it is. And, and we, we think that the effect of prayer of a righteous man is though I have more righteousness than available to them. The righteousness of Jesus is available to people just like pastors. But pray persistently. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Abraham, when, inter when interceding with the Lord over Lot, 
You know, he's talking about if there's 45 righteous, if there's 10 righteous, if there's, and he's just asking, you know, how many will it take to save the city? And God never told Abraham, as Abraham was saying, you know, if there's 45, if there's 35, if there's 20, if there's 10, God never said, look, Abraham, enough is enough. He invited his persistence because God wants us to pray. God likes to hear you pray. Now, if you're a parent and your children reach the age of four and they start asking why, and they follow you around, why, 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 why? You get to where you pull your hair out, which explains my condition. <laughs> and you say, please, no more questions, no more petitions. Any of you know what I mean? <laughs> God never does that. He is always happy to hear from you. You cannot weary him. So pray persistently if for no other reason because he enjoys hearing you pray and you want to make him happy. Like Jacob, we need to get a hold of the Lord and say, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And pray. Now what is he praying for? He's praying for rain. Tells the servant, go, he goes, nothing. Go again, he goes. Go again. Servant's probably getting tired. There's nothing, there's nothing. You know, he comes back the sixth time, his hands are on his hip, shakes it, there's nothing. He says, go again. And he goes again, he kind of looks over at the coast, and he says, what? I said, well, look at that. There is, it looks to me like a cloud. He holds up his hand, he goes, it's about the size of a man's hand. And it looks like it's rising up out of the sea, kind of like a thundercloud growing in the distance. I was out on the Mediterranean Sea. One night, I was living on a sailboat with uh, a number of students. We were on a school that sailed around the world, and we were in the Mediterranean at that point. And I was on watch very early in the morning. And it's so hard just before the sun comes up early in the morning when you're standing watch, because about four in the morning, you're like, and the most incredible thing happened. We saw a spaceship. We saw a UFO. We were standing there, and out in the dark, all of a sudden, we saw this saucer appear, and it started coming towards our boat. And it was getting bigger and bigger. I said, guys, you seen what I'm seeing? I said, what is that? I said, that's a UFO. That's a spaceship. And we're all looking at each other, and it's getting bigger and bigger. We should go tell the captain. And then one of my friends elbowed me and said, Doug, that's the sun coming up. <laughs> it was got coming through a sandstorm off the Sahara or something, and it just was the weirdest thing because the sky is still dark, but we just saw the light of the sun. It looked like a spaceship because it was like, oh, anyway. <laughs> so don't come to me with your UFO story. Karen and I were, uh, we were flying one time in our, we had a little plane for about 22 years and, and I said, look at that, a spaceship. <laughs> I said, what is it? We started flying towards it. You know, I thought, well, you know, if it's an extraterrestrial, I have questions. So <laughs> we're going to. 
And we got a little closer and I felt so stupid. It was one of these great big red helium mylar balloons. It was kind of reflective and I thought it was a spaceship. It was just standing still up there in the sky. <clears throat> yeah, so don't tell me I saw a UFO. I learned the hard way. So he saw this one thing. They hadn't seen anything in the sky in a long time. And it says about the size of a man's hand. It means it's like a man's hand, kind of concave, looking down. And uh, he comes back. And he said, the seventh time, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising up out of the sea. Now, this is coming from the west, but we've been told that when Jesus comes from the east, it may also look like small cloud at first. It's going to grow bigger and bigger until it fills the heavens. That's all that Elijah needs. He just needs that little indicator of faith. And Ahab, who's down there under his pavilion, stuffing his face, Elijah goes down to him and he says, you better prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Ahab doesn't look up. He doesn't see any rain. But all of a sudden, he feels a gust of wind. And he's learned to uh, listen to Elijah. And he tells him they better wrap up the picnic. Now, do you realize that when you pray for rain, what you're praying for? You don't pray for rain if you have a picnic the next day, do you? Because rain, rain could ruin your picnic. But if you're a farmer, you're praying for rain. When you pray for rain, you're praying for a storm. So when you pray for the outpouring of the Spirit, what do you think that's going to do to the devil? What do you think it's going to do to the church? All that live godly will suffer persecution. If we receive the outpouring of the Spirit because we turn away from our sins and humble ourselves, what happened to the disciples after Pentecost? Well, eventually they stoned Stephen and a great persecution arose and they were scattered everywhere preaching the gospel. You want to see church growth? <laughs> if you have persecution, you'll see real church growth. Because all of a sudden the hypocrites leave and the people who are in the church really believe. They understand it's life and death. You know when the church grew the best? During the time of the greatest persecution. You know some of the places where our church is growing the fastest? In the places where they don't have such abundance. Karen and I saw it firsthand in uh, India. The church is exploding with growth right now. And uh, there's religious persecution. They've got a president in India right now that isn't at all ashamed to say we are a Hindu country and they're making it difficult for Christians. And the Christians have come alive and they're starting to share their faith and some are being persecuted and some of our pastors have been killed. And we were in Africa where they got great poverty but the people are so passionate about sharing their faith. We had folks in New Guinea. They walked for six hours to come hear a sermon, and then they walked six hours home. We couldn't believe it. There are 150,000 people. Wayne was there with us. I could, I've, never had a, I've never seen anything like that before. Got to the airport, got off the plane, and we're trying to get off the plane. We're sitting close to the front. They said, no, 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 wait. There's no, 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 wait. We didn't know why they were telling us to wait. They let everybody else off the plane, and then they let us and our video team off the plane. And uh, we had some friends from Amazing Facts, Oceana, that were with us. And former president of the country was there, and 60,000 people 
And I wasn't even preaching just to greet us, 60,000 people. And they're riding us down the street in this caravan of white SUVs and, and uh, waving and smiling and saying it just brought us to tears. And I thought, and I realized it's the word of God. They love the word of God. And then for the sermon, Sabbath morning, 150,000 people. Now they tell us there's 160,000, but I thought they were exaggerating. And it's a poor country. By the way, I think that's a good sign that Jesus is coming soon. The Bible says the gospel will go into all the world. And you know, when we saw all these people that were, they're, they're downloading sermons on their phones. They live in, in houses made of palms, but they got a cell phone. And they can text anywhere in the world. Don't ask me to figure it out. But the, God, the Lord is using that, and they're streaming videos, and they're watching sermons, and, and uh, we had never been to this part of New Guinea before. But the people said, oh, we've been watching the programs. And Amazing Facts is just one of many ministries. The gospel is going into all the world. Jesus said when that happens, Matthew 24, 14, then the end will come. He didn't say everybody would believe. Now, I don't think we're there yet. We still have a lot of work to do in the Middle East. Karen and I were in the Middle East this year preaching. And the government would not let us meet in a church, but they did let us meet in a hotel room. And it was full, a banquet hall. And so we're just seeing everywhere we go, the Lord is doing something. We're scheduled to go back to China again. Amazing Facts was blessed in that we did one of the first public evangelistic meetings in China in 50 years of any denomination. We did 15 meetings in a row, recorded for TV. That They're going all over the country. We've been invited now to go back in February and do another meeting. And so it's just the Lord is opening the doors. So he said, uh, you better run for cover. There's a storm coming. Better get your chariot down before the rain stops you. You're going to get stuck in the mud. Now it happened in the meantime, while he's talking, that the sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. A heavy rain. Does God answer prayer? You know, I, uh, I looked it up because I remembered reading it in the paper back in... November 2007, in Georgia, actually all through the south, from northern Florida all through the south, they had a severe drought. Some of you remember this. And it got so bad that they were just a matter of a few weeks away from having no water in Atlanta. The reservoirs were so low, they were doing strict rations, $1,000 fines for people that were violating the rations. We just came off some water rations and a, and a drought in California. And, um, but it was very serious there in Georgia. And the governor, he went out on a limb. He's a Baptist, Sonny Perdue. And he said, we need to, we've done everything we can do. We've done all the things politically we can do. We cannot make it rain. Only God can make it rain. We need to call the people together, those who want to, and pray for rain. And so he said, whoever wants, we're going to gather on the state capitol steps, we're going to pray for rain. Well, the atheists and the cynics, they just went ballistic. 
And they said, this is church and state and you're forcing your religion. He said, Larry, I'm not forcing anyone to pray. You're forcing Christianity? He says, anyone who believes can come and pray. I'm not telling you what God to pray to. But he prayed to Jesus. And so they ended up having this prayer meeting on the Capitol steps. And while they were praying, the atheists were protesting. And they had a very sincere, they said, Lord, we need rain. We've done everything we can do. We need you to send rain. They repented of their sins. They asked God for rain. And that night there was no rain. And the media and the news, they were saying all these terrible, cynical things about the futility of prayer and there's no God. And But the next morning it began to rain. And it rained, there was a good rain, but that wasn't enough to stop the drought. But people noticed that from that point on, the rains began to come back. And they actually had some record rains in December, the next month. Within two years, all of the lakes and reservoirs were full. It all turned around when they came together and they humbled themselves and they prayed. People asked Governor Purdue about that. He said, look, I'm not going to go there right now. You just look at the evidence. I'm not going to comment on it. So they prayed, and fire came down that day, and they prayed, and rain came down that day. Now I want to talk about one of the most important things I'm going to share with you this morning. John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. How many of you would like to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus began preaching. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We must humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways if we would enter the kingdom of God. But there's more to it than that. We must be born again. We must be born of the water, and we must be born of the Spirit. And that water baptism, the water represents baptism in water. It's a choice you make to dedicate yourself to the Lord. And the other baptism is the baptism of fire, the Spirit. Remember what John the Baptist said. I come and I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, does the Lord say... You need to be baptized in either fire or water. Or does he say it is imperative that you are baptized in both if you would enter the kingdom of heaven? Will you forgive me if I say my observation has been, having been worshiping with Pentecostals before I worship with Seventh-day Adventists, who probably hyper-emphasized Holy Spirit baptism. But I think God did that to me on purpose. That we have a tendency to overemphasize only water baptism. I've been an evangelist for years. And when I get done doing a crusade, in order for me to stay employed as an evangelist, what's the president going to ask me? How many baptisms were there? And... Uh, there have been times when I've been tempted, and I know other evangelists have been tempted, 
to maybe baptize people that weren't ready because we've got to give a report. That's very dangerous. But I've never had anybody ask me, how many received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? How much in baptism in water is what you need for joining the church? But if you want to get into God's kingdom, you need both baptisms. The children of Israel, before they entered the promised land, John, uh, the Bible tells us, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they went through the sea, which is a symbol of being baptized in Christ. And when the Egyptians came after them, God sent a pillar of fire to light their way and darken the adversary. They were baptized in the fire and they were baptized in the water. And then they entered the promised land. They needed both baptisms. We need both baptisms. I'll tell you, it was an exciting experience for uh, Karen and I, and, and uh, I think Wayne was with us in Israel. Uh, we went to two locations where the fire of God came down. We were there on Mount Carmel, and the thing that struck me is this is one of the few places on the planet where fire came down from God. And then when we were standing there by the Temple Mount, and that was a place where the fire of God came down. So on several occasions, actually, you know, the reason that the Temple Mount was chosen is there was a plague that went through the land because of the pride. David had been numbering Israel. David, who had always trusted in God, he never figured how big his army was. That had nothing to do with his victory. Jonathan said, God can deliver by few or many. David and one other soldier named Eliezer fought off a Philistine army at one point. Have you read the story of David and his mighty men? David by himself stood up against Goliath. It had always been just you and God are a majority. And now David, after the years go by, he starts counting the soldiers. Wow, we got quite an army. Hey, Joab, let's see how many people we got. The land has grown. They're like the sand of the sea. Let's do a census. Now, he wasn't doing a census like Moses did. He was doing a census to say, look how big we are. Even Joab understood it. His general, he said, why are you asking for this? He didn't want to do it. It was driven by pride, and the people had become very proud of their growth and their success and the power of the army. And because of that, God sent a plague. And thousands died. And David, when he heard what was happening, he saw what was happening, he actually, God gave him a choice what, what punishment he wanted. He said, we're going to fall into the hands of the Lord, and it turned out being a plague. And, and David was praying. He said, Lord, take Take it out on me, not these sheep. What have they done? He's interceding for the people like Jesus, the son of David. And he looks up and he sees an angel above Jerusalem with a sword drawn in his hand. The angel of the Lord going through the land, slain. And David is praying and the angel stops. And the angel is directly above this place where Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. It so happens it's called the threshing floor of Ornan. And David, <clears throat> he knows he needs to intercede for the people. And so he buys this threshing floor. And even Ornan and his friends, they see the angel up there when you read it. And they offer sacrifice. And the Bible says that they, they put this offering on the altar and the fire comes down from God and accepts it and the plague stops. David said, this is the place. I've always wanted to build a temple. Now I know where to build it. This is the place. Later, when Solomon builds the temple, after seven years of construction, 
when he has his beautiful dedication prayer. By the way, that's one of the longest prayers in the Bible. I talked last night about one of the shortest. He has a beautiful dedication prayer, and at the end of his prayer, the fire of God comes down on the altar. The sons of Aaron, two of them were killed because they took common fire and brought it into the sanctuary. They were only supposed to take the fire from the altar because God had been the one to kindle that fire in the tabernacle of the wilderness. And sometimes we try to use counterfeit fire in the church. It needs to be the real thing. How do you know when you've got the real fire of God? You'll have the fruits of the Spirit. There'll be love, joy, and peace, and patience, and long-suffering, and goodness, and faith. The Bible says all people will know we're his disciples by our love for one another. There will be a passion and a zeal and a boldness for evangelism that we haven't seen since the days of the apostles. I just am amazed. How did the apostles, these 12 relatively uneducated men, manage to do evangelism that spread throughout the Roman Empire without the internet or television or radio or printing press? You know, amazing facts depend so heavily on various forms of media. How did they do that? They had the Holy Spirit. You know, we keep thinking that uh, the answer for the problem of evangelism is going to be more money, better machines, better methods. All those things are important, but what God really wants is better men and women. If we are spirit-filled, there's no limit to what God can do. And Elijah said to the king, prepare your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. And it happens in the meantime, the sky became black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy rain, a pouring rain. And Ahab rode away in his chariot. And he went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. And he girded up his loins. He tied up his mantle and he girded up his loins and tucked it into his belt. And he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The Holy Spirit came on him. The Bible says if you can't compete with a footman, how are you going to compete with horses? Well, if you've got the Holy Spirit, you can keep up with a horse. And you can kill a giant and a lion and a bear. Amen? The Spirit of the Lord came on Elijah. Why did he run before Ahab? Because he was the king. And you know, John the Baptist is a type of Elijah. And John the Baptist said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, the king. John the Baptist ran before the king to prepare the way. And here Elijah is running before the king to prepare the way. You know, there used to be a team of people that would run before the king. Uh, what's his name? Absalom, when he wanted to be king, he had 50 men run before him. And they would go, this entourage would go as some of you saw when uh, our president was recently in North Korea meeting with the president of North Korea. They showed the limousine of the North Korean president with his security running ahead of the limousine. Any of you see that? And I was in Africa and I saw the, uh, oh boy, these poor guys too. They're right by the equator. The president was driving by. I looked out my window and I saw these guys in black suits on the equator running all around this black limousine. That's security. Well, in Bible times, there used to be 
a team that ran before the king, and if there were any high spots, they'd cut them down. If there were any ruts or low spots, they'd fill them in. The Bible tells us that when the spirit of Elijah comes, the proud will be cut down. Those that don't think they're good enough will be built up. And the message of Elijah will go before the Lord to prepare the way, to prepare the hearts of the people. Someone said that the work of a pastor is to comfort those who are uncomfortable and to make those who are comfortable uncomfortable. This is what Elijah did. He ran before the king to prepare the way. Where did he get that strength? The Bible says in Isaiah, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. And he could run and keep up with horses. You'll find out in our message tonight that Elijah was given supernatural strength more times than one. I'll close with this. Our greatest need is a need for the Holy Spirit. It is the most urgent of our needs. If we would receive the Holy Spirit, we must humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways. Some of you have heard me share this before. It's just such an incredible story. I think it bears repeating. It's referred to as the miracle of Andersonville. Camp Sumter, which is the same camp commonly called Andersonville, was the largest Confederate military prison of war camp during the Civil War. The 16-acre stockade quickly grew during 1863-1864 to over 26 acres as trainloads of Union prisoners arrived. The space, originally designed to hold about 10,000 people, soon had as many as 32,000 people of Northern soldiers. The men were herded together like cattle in a pen with barely enough dirt to lay down each night. By winter, the prisoners shivered and froze. There was no shelter. They were open to the environment. In the summer, they languished under sweltering 100-degree summer days that seemed unbearable. Many died from just the heat. By 1864, the Confederate troops had little food. The soldiers did not have food. How do you think they fed the prisoners? They were starving. The misery was compounded by the filthy water. There was a small creek that ran into the prison yard from the north, but before it ran into the prison yard, it passed through the living area of the Confederate guards and their livestock. And by the time this stream reached the prisoners, it was badly fouled by man and beast. This virtual sewage was the only water provided to the Union prisoners. That's why you shouldn't be surprised that out of, <clears throat> excuse me, out of 30,000 prisoners, during its 14 months of operation, 13,000 of them died, not just from starvation, but from malaria and malnutrition, largely caused by the swamp that was in their camp. In 1864, in the August, it was especially brutal, 100-degree days. A great number, and I'm quoting, of the prisoners gathered under the blazing sun, kneeling against each other, and they prayed to God and they asked for rain, not only to cool them, give them something to drink, but to raise the stream level, to purge the filthy camp. They also specifically asked for clean water. The, the sky had no clouds in it when they prayed. 
several things happened very quickly that were described as a miracle. After their prayer, the wind picked up and a powerful dark thunderstorm began to move and develop directly over the camp. The cloud cracked and ruptured and a heavy rain began to pour down, cleansing the prisoners, slating their thirst. It's what you call a gully washer, flushing the camp. To top things off, God sent a mighty lightning bolt that struck the ground in the middle of the crowded camp, but somehow it did not harm any prisoners. The rain was miraculous, and a miraculous answer to prayer. The lightning missing the men was a second miracle day, but here's the third miracle. Where the lightning struck, a new, cool, clean spring of water suddenly appeared in the camp. And it's still running to this day. They call it Providence Spring. Does God still answer prayer? If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. I'll answer their prayer. Has God changed? If we would pray with purpose and persistence and power, I think God wants to send the Spirit on his church. Amen? Can we pray before we have our closing song together? I'll ask you to simply bow your heads where you are. Father in heaven, we are thankful for these stories in your word that are so relevant today. We believe there is a famine in the land, there's a famine in the world, in the country for truth, for your word. Lord, we need revival in our lives. We need revival in our church. We ask that you forgive our sins. Search our hearts, Lord, if there is any wicked way in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. I pray that each of us will examine ourselves to see whether we be in the faith that will prove ourselves. Help us to be honest with our own souls. Lord, it's fatal that we would lie to ourselves and then be among those that say, Lord, Lord, and hear you declare that you don't know us. Tell us whatever it is we need to hear, whatever it is we need to do from a human standpoint to cooperate with your supernatural gift to change us and to heal us. I pray your blessing on each person, Lord, and their families. Some need physical healing. Some, Lord, need spiritual healing. We have multiple problems we may be worried about, their finances or other issues, but we know the greatest need is the need for your spirit. So send the Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray that you'll send the latter rain and that you'll pour your showers upon us. May we be refreshed. And in our time together this Sabbath that remains, in our fellowship with each other, I pray that we'll just be spontaneously praying to you and asking you to work a miracle and transform us, Lord. Raise up your people. Share the news that Jesus is coming soon. We thank you and we ask all this in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.